Well, the title of tonight's sermon is Walking in Integrity. Walking in Integrity. And for those of you who are new here to, to our study, we've been going through on Wednesday nights and we've been doing a, a series called Insights from Psalms. And we've been working our way through the Psalms on Wednesday nights. And on Sunday mornings, we've been going through a series on the prayers of Paul. And so those just happen to be the parts of the Bible that we're focusing on at the moment. But tonight we're going to take a look at Psalm 26. But our title, Walking in Integrity, as you think about even that title, the word walk it refers to a manner of living. And that word is used or it's discussed throughout Scripture as it relates to the lives or the manner of living of people of faith, men and women of faith. So there's a lot of different passages where you have that phrase associated with how are you going to live your life? And so walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise is one of those passages. Walk in love is another one of those passages. So that word walk, different characteristics are given that should describe or characterize what our way of living, our manner of living is as men and women of faith. Well, that word comes up, we're going to see here, in this Old Testament psalm, this psalm of David, but this walk, this manner of living. And God wants the believer's life to reflect an interdependence on him. So when you think about if I'm going to depend on God and I'm going to allow him to work and direct in my life, then when I think of my manner of living, my manner of living is going to be directed and influenced by him. And so if he's the one who's directing and influencing my way of living, my way of thinking first, and then my words and my deeds that flow from that, my, my manner of living, then God, if he's the one directing, he's going to produce a life that would bring him glory, a life that is consistent with who he is because it will be his character being manifest in my life. It won't be about me anymore. It'll be about me being a reflection of him. And when that's taking place, the kind of life or way of living that God's going to produce in my life is going to be a set-apart life. It's going to be a life that is complete. See, we are complete in Christ. We lack nothing. Even as we think about Psalm 23, because the Lord is my shepherd, in the NIV, that verse ends, Psalm 23, 1, by saying, because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack Nothing, so we're complete. We'd have a way of living that is complete, it's set apart. The other description of that life, if it's going to be produced by God working in our lives, it's going to be the kind of life that is morally upright, morally upright. A life, you could say, of integrity. That word integrity refers to a number of different things, but it talks, it refers to the idea of being blameless, being innocent, or being upright. And so when you think about walking or having a manner of life that is described by integrity, that's the kind of life that God is going to produce in me. If a, a life of integrity is one that is set apart, it's blameless, it's innocent, and it's upright. So as we think about that word, walking in integrity, is that something that we want for ourselves? Now that's something that God wants to define or describe our manner of living, our walk, Our way of life, he wants our lives to be described by integrity. But the question is, do we want that? See, God wants to set believers apart. He wants to proclaim himself through your faithful testimony. As you think about living a life that would bring him honor and glory, ultimately, though, with what purpose in mind? With the purpose in mind that as I'm a reflection of God, I would be used of him to testify to his goodness, to his love for mankind, and ultimately to his plan of rescue and redemption that he has made me an ambassador of, that message, that message of hope, that message of good news. 
And so we think about how God has that design that we would walk in integrity. And God, when he gives us a mission, he never fails to support that mission. And if the mission is to walk with integrity, to walk in a way that is morally complete, that is morally upright, that is set apart, that is pure, that is innocent, that again has no, is a reflection of God's goodness, then God's going to undertake to make that possible. Now, how is he going to make that possible? Well, he's going to make a life that would bring him glory possible through his love for us, through his provision for us, through his faithfulness toward us. And as you think about God making that kind of manner of living possible, walking in integrity, making that possible or so that that could be and should be true of each and every believer's lives, still you have to come back, though, to the idea that God wants that to be true, but yet, on the other hand, every individual believer must ultimately choose to either embrace or reject the life that God offers. God has a plan for your life. God has a direction for your life. He has a purpose for your life. He has the power to make that possible in your life and to to make your mission successful. But the question is, do you even want it? Will you choose that? So when you think about that, the believer is practically blameless the moment he chooses to trust God, appropriate God's power and provision, and follow God's direction for his life. Now that's also true of his position. The moment that person puts their faith and trust in God's provision to meet their sinfulness, to meet their need, their greatest need, which is that they were born associated with sinfulness instead of God's righteousness, that they were born dead in trespasses and sins, separated from God as a result of their association with rebellion and rejection against God, and that God had to undertake to make a way for a man who was permanently estranged from God due to sin to have a relationship with him. And we know that the way that the Bible reveals that plan of rescue, that that plan involved God providing a substitute to take our punishment, to, take our, to pay our debt, to die in the place of the guilty, that, so that by an innocent dying in the place of the guilty, the guilty could be set free, not because of something they had done for God, but because of something that God had done for them to break down this wall of partition, this, this barrier of sin that was separating a sinful man from a holy and righteous God, and that the moment a person understands that they're helpless to do anything to deal with this separation that they had from God, this estrangement that sin has brought about between them and a holy God. As soon as they realize that they can't do anything about it, that they're hopeless and they're helpless and ultimately they're hell-bound unless God were to do something to remove that barrier, then they're in a position to accept the solution that God has for their condition, for the predicament that they're in, that solution that was made possible through the person and work of Jesus Christ as he broke down that barrier of sin by paying that sin debt that was owed by all man for... No matter who they were, every man, woman, and child on planet Earth, as he paid that debt for you and I so that we wouldn't have to be separated from God, but that that sin could be taken out of the way so that we could have access to God through the cross of Jesus Christ as he died, was buried, and rose again for us. And the Bible says that the moment that we put our trust in God's only solution to man's sinfulness, that sacrifice of the spotless Lamb of God as he died in our place, we are positionally viewed by God because now we've been covered in, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We've walked through the door that says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. By faith or believing or trusting in what God has done for us, we now are born again. We have access to, we've, we're made alive. We have access to God. We're adopted 
into his family, not because of anything we've done other than accepting by faith this gift of eternal life that Jesus offers through his sacrifice on our behalf. And the moment we trust that, God says we are changed. Our identity is changed. We are no longer associated with Adam's sin and a rejection and rebellion against God, but because of our faith in what God has done to fix our problem, to bear our guilt and to bear our debt, we're now made right with God through the work and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that's now been credited to our account. We've now been clothed with his righteousness. And as we step into that faith relationship with Jesus Christ, we're said to now be permanently sealed by God's spirit. We're now a part of his family. And positionally, God now sees us as blameless, not because we are blameless, but because all of our sinfulness, all of our unrighteousness has now been covered by the shed blood of Jesus Christ who died in our stead, who died in our place. So now God the Father, when he looks at us, now clothed in the righteousness of his Son, having the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ clothing us and covering our sin, he now can accept us on the basis of our identification with his Son who is fully acceptable to him. Now we're fully acceptable to God on the basis of that substitutionary atonement and payment that redemption that Christ offered through his substitutionary death on our behalf. Now God looks at us and he says, you are blameless. Now I go into that only for the reason that very often people, as they're reading through the Bible, they confuse passages that are about practical sanctification or this idea of being set apart or holy before God in a present practical kind of a way. They, they confuse that with how is a person seen to be blameless or spotless or set apart in a positional way. I'm no, I'm no longer positionally in Adam anymore. I'm now in Christ, and that is a one-time decision where there's a one-time new birth where Jesus says to Nicodemus, you have to be born again. You have to have a spiritual birth in addition to your physical birth so that you can now be born into God's family. And that happens once. And in David's life, that's not what he's talking about here. Because of his faith in God's solution to deal with his sinfulness, at some point in the past, David was already blameless before God in a positional sense. What David is talking about in terms of walking blamelessly, walking in integrity, is this idea of being practically blameless. Now, how is he practically blameless? Well, he's going to say, I'm practically blameless at any present moment in time because I'm practically presently choosing to trust God. I'm choosing to appropriate God's power. I'm choosing to live in light of God's provision for me. I'm choosing to follow God's direction for my life. And in those moments, when those things are true of me, then God can say practically, you're walking in integrity. You're walking in a way that is innocent, upright, blameless, holy and set apart before me. And so as you think about Psalm 26 here, David is going to express this desire to live God's way and thus be practically blameless. Again, this isn't about positionally being blameless. It's about being practically blameless. So if you haven't turned there, turn to Rome, sorry, Psalm chapter 26. Psalm chapter 26. Normally I'm the only one who hasn't turned there, so, but I hear a few pages turning. And we're going to break down this psalm a little bit more. It's a difficult psalm in some ways. But when you, when you understand the difference between positional sanctification or practical sanctification, it makes, a lot, it makes a lot more sense. So let's talk about this first section here. Now this psalm is 12 verses long. In fact, why don't we read it 
Uh, that way we'll have the full context kind of on the launching pad of our thinking. We'll have it front and center, and then we'll break down these verses. But starting in verse 1 of, of Psalm 26, we have, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. That's where we get our title, walking in integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart, for your loving kindness is before my eyes. And I have walked in your truth. I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. I will wash my hands in innocence, so I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house, and the place where your glory dwells. Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in, in whose hands is a sinister scheme and, in, and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in my integrity. There we have it again, walking in integrity. Redeem me and be merciful to me. My foot stands in an even place. In the congregation I will bless the Lord." This isn't a psalm I was familiar with as we've been going through the psalms. Some of them, we know little bits and pieces of them because we've, we've memorized or maybe we've meditated on certain verses that jump out at us. This isn't, this isn't one of them for me that I was familiar with, but let's dig into it as we talk about what it means to walk in integrity. Now, the first thing about this as you think about judging whether your way of living or your manner of life is acceptable and pleasing to the Lord who is the one to judge? And I have this section titled, God be my judge. God be my judge. Let's look at these first two verses. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. That's his summary statement. I have walked in this way. I've, I have walked in integrity. I've, I've walked in a way that could be generally described as blameless. But who is he asking to judge that? Well, the Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord. I have also trusted in the Lord, I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. So what song did we sing before the service here tonight? Very often the songs that are selected tie into what we're going through, but the, the hook of that song was, Search me, O God. I believe it's Psalm 130 or somewhere around there is where that comes from. But search me, O God, and know my heart, I pray. Find if there be wickedness in me. We are not even in a place to self-evaluate evaluate our own inner disposition in a way that would reveal the truth because we're often self-deceived. So the prayer of David in that psalm, which is similar to what he's saying here is, God, you be the judge. You reveal to me, show me, he says, reveal to me if there's any wickedness in me because it says the heart of man is what? The heart of man is deceitful above all things. But what, how does that verse end? And desperately wicked, and who can know it? So the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, but who can even know it? We often aren't even in a position where we're capable of determining the full measure of our depravity, of our improper thinking, of our improper motives. That's the nature of deception is that you don't, you're not aware of it. It wouldn't be deception otherwise. That's why it's called deception. So we have this phrase, vindicate me. And it involves making a determination or passing judgment. In the King James Version, it says, 
judge me or be my judge. What, is, what does it say specifically? It says, judge me, O Lord, I think. Who's got one? Judge me, O Lord. And so that's another way that this word in Hebrew can be translated is to pass judgment or make a determination. But most translations now use this phrase vindicate, meaning make a judgment that I'm in a, a good standing because the focus of the word involves more than just making a judgment. It, makes, it means to make a favorable judgment. So in the context, that vindication or judgment involves a determination showing one to be right. It's not just a judgment. It's a judgment that I'm in the right that I'm handling things uprightly because we're back to the definition of integrity. Integrity involves having this moral uprightness. So make a determination that that's true. And, and who's the one doing it though? Well, David poetically describes God as conducting this examination of sorts or God be my judge. In verse 2 he says what? Examine me, O Lord, try my mind and my heart. So we have this idea of almost God conducting a trial to determine if David is living, has a manner of living that is upright like he hopes it would be, like he wants it to be, like he believes it to be. Is that true in me though? Is what David is saying. God be my judge. And David realizes that God's evaluation and assessment is the only one that matters. Now think about that, this idea of being judgmental. God doesn't need us to be judging each other, but at the same time, passing judgment in the sense of passing the judgment on to someone else or, or judging them is different than making judgments or using good judgment. To, to use good judgment is just to come to right conclusions. It's to have this idea of to make a determination about what's right and wrong. So we have to use our judgment. That doesn't mean we have to judge people, though. And so sometimes people say it's, it's always wrong to make a judgment. No, it's, it's good and it's right to compare what is being said or to examine things, to search things out, and as informed by the truth from God's Word, to come to a conclusion or a judgment about the goodness or the rightness of whatever it is that you're considering. What's wrong is to look down on people because of your conclusions or to judge people. And so that's different, though, when we look at God being the righteous judge. God's different than us. God is in a position to make perfect judgments about whether or not this is in alignment with his word. With, is this in alignment with his truth? Is this righteous? Is this godly kind of thinking or godly kind of speech or godly kind of behavior. God is in a position to reveal that to us, which is why we even in that, in that psalm and even in that song, reveal, let me know if there's any hidden things in me that I need to be aware of. And that's what David's saying here. Examine me, prove me, try my heart. But he knows that other people's view of him is irrelevant. Now, do people have certain kind of conclusions and opinions about you? The answer is yes. If we were to pick a person in this room and we were to ask each individual person, as long as they didn't have to own up to it, you know, as long as they could do it in secret, uh, they'd have all kinds of different opinions about you. Now, would they all be the same? No, they wouldn't be. But does it ultimately matter what they think about you? Not really. Your testimony does matter. So in a sense, your witness or people's perception of, of you has, it, it does matter a little bit, but ultimately it's God's evaluation of your character, your conduct, your motives, your thinking 
That's the thing that matters most, and David realizes that. Now, every person faces that judgment by others, but your concern should be God's evaluation of things because your desire should be to please him, not others. Now, think about that. Isn't it true that by default, very often, you're more concerned about other people's judgment of you than you are about God's evaluation, God's judgment of you? You know, oftentimes when you think about we're all susceptible to this because one of the things that our flesh desperately is needing and desperately is wanting is the acceptance of others. And so as you think about how that plays out, we're then desperately concerned about what other people think about us because we want to be accepted by people. And young people are especially prone to being attacked on that front because they are sometimes uncertain about their place in the world. They're unsettled. They're, they're in a place of transition. And so a young person very often is more concerned about what other people think about them for definitively more concerned about that than what God thinks about them. So what I remind my young kid, children, they're 12 and 14, but I try to remind them even when I bring them to a sporting event or to a school event or any event, if I am thinking of it, I try to remind them, you're not here to fit in. You're here to be a light for Jesus. You're not here to make sure other people like you. Is that a good thing? Sure. But not at the cost of compromising your mission, not at the cost of making sure that other people will accept you, even if it means participating in their language, participating in their behavior, participating in their thinking, which is overtly ungodly. If I have to make myself ungodly and I have to participate in these things to be accepted by you, God is saying, why would you want that acceptance? My acceptance is unconditional on, on one level, and my view of you or my judgment or my sort of my consideration or assessment of your thinking, that's the thing that matters because I'm the person who only ever applies a perfectly just and fair and right standard. And so if I convict you of some changes that are needed in your life, it's for your good. And sometimes I will use people to do that. But when I'm doing it, can you take that from the Lord? And as you take that from the Lord, can you trust that when God makes you aware of things that are incompatible with his character, with his purpose, with his plan, with his will for your life, could you take that advice and that feedback from him in a way where you're thankful for it instead of resisting it, instead of getting defensive about it, instead of making excuses for yourself? Could you take God's making you aware of that thinking and that behavior and those things that need changing in your life? And you, could you say, thank you, Lord, for not leaving me in the dark about that. Thank you for using my parents. Thank for you for using, blessed are the wounds of a friend. Thank you for using church leadership. Thank you for using other believers in my life. Thank you for using your word. Thank you for using the teaching of God's word to make me aware of things that are non-compliant with your plan and your purpose and your will for me. And unfortunately, that's not normally how we see it, but David seems to understand that. He seems to have this desire that his life would be well-pleasing to God first and foremost. He isn't worried about, is my life going to be well-pleasing to others? And you see that David expresses this confidence regarding God's favorable, expected favorable evaluation of him. He uses this phrase, I have walked in my integrity. He doesn't say, I might have been doing that. He says, I have walked in my integrity. Now, that can also be translated, I have walked blame, in blamelessness. I have walked in innocence. I have walked in uprightness. 
all alternative English words that can be translated for that same idea of integrity. Blamelessness, innocence, and uprightness. He says, I have walked that way. Now, what ultimately gives David this confidence? And I want you to really see this. It's in this phrase, second phrase in verse 1, I have also trusted in the Lord. See, I have walked in blamelessness, innocent, and uprightness, but why? Because I had trusted the Lord. I have also trusted in the Lord. And then what does he say? Therefore, is in the King James Version, therefore, I shall not slip. Now, that means without wavering or being shaken, meaning I have trusted in the Lord without being shaken, or I have unwavering trust in the Lord. I have had that. You see, trusting in the Lord involves dependence on the Lord and a willingness to be directed by the Lord. Make note of that. It's really two parts to that. When you talk, think about trusting the Lord, it means to trust that God is able to provide on one hand, so it's trusting and depending on, Lord's prov- on the Lord's provision, but it also, and, and it involves humility saying, I can't do this apart from you, but then it also involves a willingness to be directed by the Lord. So it involves dependence on the Lord and a willingness to be directed by the Lord. You see, David's confidence has nothing to do with human perfection or sinlessness. He's not saying, I have been sinless. When he says, I have walked in blamelessness, innocence, and uprightness, he's talking about as a result of trusting the Lord, having this unwavering or unshaking trust in the Lord, my life has been one that has brought God Glory, my way of living, my manner of living has been characterized not by perfect innocence or perfect blamelessness or perfect uprightness, but it's generally been characterized by God's uprightness, God's righteousness, God's blamelessness as he produced that in me. See, David recognizes that any walk of integrity is the byproduct of this unwavering trust in the Lord. And I love that that's really clear here because otherwise you'd get this sense that David almost has this ego where he's saying, I've been walking blamelessly. Look at what I've done. But no, he's tying walking blamelessly or living, having a manner of living that's blameless, innocent, and upright. He's tying it to this unwavering trust in the Lord. Now think about this. You'll never depend on the Lord completely until you realize how hopeless you are and how loving, awesome, and capable he is. You see, this byproduct was produced in David's life where his life or his manner of living was one that was filled with integrity. I've been living with integrity is another way to say it. I've been walking in integrity. Now why? Because I've been trusting the Lord in an unwavering kind of a way. Now why though? Because I know that I am helpless without him. I know that without him, I lose my way. I know that I can do nothing apart from Christ. I can do absolutely nothing apart from God's Spirit empowering, leading, directing, working, undertaking, providing in me. I see that. And that causes me to collapse restfully in a dependent posture where I'm depending on God to produce a way of living in me that would be otherwise absolutely impossible. I'm trusting God to lead because I know I can't direct my own steps, but I know that God can I've learned to not trust myself. I've learned to not trust others, but I've learned to trust him completely. And the result of that has been that my life now can be described as innocent, upright, and blameless. I see how much he loves me, 
I see how powerful he is. I see he can produce this way of life in me. Now let's go to verse 3 because that reinforces it even more. See, the focus is always on God's love and faithfulness. You could have the takeaway from this message being, man, I got to buckle down. I, I haven't been walking in integrity. I haven't been walking in a way that's blameless and upright and innocent. My life is filled with guilt. My, my life is filled with shame and regret. I haven't been doing the right things. Man, passage was talking about, pastor was talking about this idea of walking in a way that was upright and having this integrity. You know what? I just haven't been focused enough on producing some integrity in my life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to knuckle down now and, and, and going forward, I'm going to have more integrity and, and I'm going to be blameless before God. I will say this, you have to at least want that, but you have to see that you could never produce that. God is going to have to make those changes in you. God is going to have to produce that way of living in you. You're going to have to just make a decision to stop leaning on your own understanding, to stop trusting yourself, to try, start Stop taking your direction from other people. To stop taking your direction from what the world says is good. To stop finding your purpose in things that cannot satisfy. And to start, get your gaze fixed on the Lord. Start trusting the Lord. Start depending on the Lord to produce this in you. That's why it's so wonderful that the focus here is still, it's always on God's love and faithfulness. Now let's read verse three. He says this, for your loving kindness is before my eyes and I have walked in your truth. For, for is, could be translated as because. I'm confident that I have walked in my integrity. Why? Because I've been trusting the Lord in an unwavering way. My confidence comes because, but why was I trusting the Lord? Because your loving kindness was ever before my eyes and I was walking in your truth. See that capital Y there in verse three, for your truth. See, for your loving kindness is before my eyes. The word for loving kindness refers to God's loyal, steadfast, and faithful love. It's a word called hased. It's found hundreds of times in the Old Testament in reference to God's loyal, steadfast, and faithful love. What makes this possible? For, because I, I've been able to experience this way of living. I've been, I've been trusting God because your loving kindness, your loyal, steadfast, and faithful love has been right before my eyes. Another way of saying it would be, it's because I never lose sight of your faithfulness and unfailing love. I never lose sight of your faithfulness and unfailing love. That's what's made this possible. You see, the foundation for David's hope and security is not personal integrity and sinlessness, but it's ra rather it's God's steadfast love and unfailing faithfulness. That's the focus of this. David isn't focused on how wonderful he is. He's focused on how wonderful his God is. How his God is able to, as a result of his trusting God, produce in him a way of life that would be described or defined as being a life of integrity. David understands that. We lose sight of that, just like I'm sure David did at times in his life. Now the other word here, the other phrase here we see that is always again keeping that focus on God and his love and his faithfulness. So the first part is I never lose sight of your faithfulness and unfailing love and that's how this has been possible in my life. But then he uses this phrase, I have walked in your truth. Now there's two ways to understand this. 
The first is that David is focused on his, his faithful way of living, which he then describes with these various examples or attributes of faithful living, that he's saying, because I never lost sight of your faithfulness and unfailing love, then I, that caused me to walk in God's truth. And then the focus is going to continue with descriptions of what walking in God's truth looks like compared to not walking in God's truth. That's one example. That's how some translations have this. I would say in some ways that's the thrust that you're getting from King James and New King James here. But there's another way to look at it too. The other way is that God, that David is, instead of being focused on his faithful way of living that was produced as a result of having never lost sight of God's faithfulness and unfailing love. That's a true principle. It very likely, it, it very likely could inspire that kind of a response or that, that kind of a result or outcome. But the other way to look at it is that David is focused on having lived according to God's faithfulness. So the focus stays on God. You see, this word truth here is very often, in most translations actually, it's actually translated faithfulness, your faithfulness, not your truth. Now, the word could be translated either way, so this isn't something, this isn't a point I'm being dogmatic about, but in the context where David is talking about, this is the for, this is the, this is the because, this is the explanation for how this was true in my life, and one of those explanations was, I never lost sight of your faithfulness and unfailing love. As you get to the second statement here, I have walked in your truth. Whose truth are we talking about? God's faithfulness. It's not, it's not his own faithfulness that's in view here. It's God's faithfulness that's in view. And so given the immediate focus that's on God's faithfulness and unfailing love, I actually prefer this second way of looking at it, that David is focused on having lived according to God's faithfulness. Now, if you take that view, you would look at it like the ESV does and you would say, I walk in your faithfulness. So the two things here are, I have never lost sight of your faithfulness and unfailing love because I walk in your faithfulness. Not because I'm faithful or because I'm so true or because I'm living in your truth. It's because I'm depending on your faithfulness, God. Now, we know that's a fixed principle. We know it's true as well. So neither of these things is wrong. But the idea is there is, I have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. That's how another translation has it. I have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. Now, living in reliance on God's faithfulness, could that bring about this outcome Walk that, that David's life would be described as walking in integrity? Absolutely. That's exactly the kind of fixation and focus and occupation you would need to have for, in order for this to be true. So I actually love that translation. I have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. I never lose sight of your faithfulness and unfailing love. And I have lived in reliance on that very same faithfulness that I just got done talking about in reference to Hased, God's unfailing, steadfast, and faithful love. You see, remembering God's love and faithfulness should result in unwavering trust and complete dependence on God's provision and direction for your life, which ultimately leads to a way of living that is upright, blameless, and set apart. So if, our, if we're paraphrasing these three verses, that's what we're getting out of this. Remembering, I have never forgotten this. I've been living in reliance on your faithfulness and your steadfast love. And as I remember God's love and faithfulness, it should result in this unwavering trust and this complete dependence on God's provision and direction for my life. Now, what's the result of that? Which ultimately leads to then a way of living that is upright, blameless, and set apart, our word walking in integrity. 
That's how you, the flow of thought works in those verses. Now he's going to describe a life of integrity in these next verses. Let's read verses 4 through 8. I have not sat with adulterous mortals. That doesn't define or describe a life of integrity. Nor will I go in with the hypocrites. I have hated or disapproved is another word for that. I've disapproved the assembly of evildoers and I will not sit with the wicked. I will instead, here's the alternative, I will wash my hands in innocence so I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. That would be very different than those first descriptions of what you could be doing. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. A different kind of mindset, right? So a way of living that never loses sight of God's love and faithfulness and lives in reliance on God's faithfulness, it naturally excludes intimate association with people and things that are opposed to God. Now there's a very big takeaway here from verses 4 and 5 specifically. A way of living that never loses sight of God's love and faithfulness and lives in reliance on God's faithfulness and is described as walking in integrity, it never intimately associates with people and things that are opposed to him. Ungodliness and unrighteousness, those aren't the things that that person is seeking out if they have that kind of mindset. Now, question. Does that mean that you're never coming into contact with ungodliness and unrighteousness? Answer is no. Jesus talked about this in the book of John. Jesus said, I do not pray, he's talking to the Father. He says, I do not pray that you would take them out of this world. What's the only way that you could avoid ever coming into contact with ungodliness and unrighteousness? Well, one, it's inside of you, okay? So you would have to be glorified in order to escape complete exposure to those kinds of things because you have a sin nature. The residue of what it was associated with your natural birth into the identity that you had in Adam, it didn't just go, go away. Your bondage that you were into the flesh or to the sin nature was broken by the victory that was provided by Jesus Christ and your faith in Christ alone. You were given victory. The law, uh, the spirit of life and godliness has given me freedom from the law of sin and death, according to Romans chapter 8. So as I was indwelt now with a new nature, with the, the Spirit of God, I was given victory over the bondage I had been in to sin where sin was dictating that sin nature, that tendency to always elevate self or put me first. That's the best description of the sin nature is me first. That way of thinking, that propensity to always put self first, the bondage I was into, that mentality was broken by the cross and by my faith in Christ's finished work on his behalf and by then the indwelling of God's Spirit. But yet I still have an internal battle, a spiritual battle that is raging, that is warring within my members that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7. I'm still dealing with that conflict, that war, that pulling between the things that are right that God is trying to direct me in, the Spirit of God is trying to lead me in, and the me-first mentality that is still trying to get a hold of me, still trying to direct my thinking. God said, I've been given freedom from that, but does that mean that I always avail myself practically of the freedom that has been made available? And the answer is no. I don't always appropriate the freedom and the victory that has been provided to me 
by virtue of my new birth into God's royal family, that battle is still, is still raging. And so as, I think, as you think about that aspect of things, the reality is that could you, come, could you be excluded from any contact with a selfish, me-first, ungodly perspective while still being alive? Not really, because you still have that battle raging inside of you secondarily, even if that was true. You live amongst people, all of whom are what? All of whom are sinners. And so they're all flawed and they're plagued by imperfection. God is in the process with believers of trying to transform them more and more into the image of the Son of God. We call that progressive sanctification, this process over time of, of God trying to mold us and change us into something new. But that's an ongoing process that's not completed yet. It's not perfect. And so we're, even with believers, we're exposed to others who still have the, the propensity anyway to influence us with ungodliness and unrighteousness. And then we have an ungodly world controlled by the father of lies, Satan himself, that is diabolically opposed to the things that are true and the things that are right. And we're being bombarded by forces that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the evil forces, the evil wickedness of this present age. That's what we're dealing with, friends. So could we have complete freedom from that? No, and God said, I didn't want you to have complete freedom from that. One day I will give you complete freedom from that. But God, Jesus Christ said, I do not pray that you take them out of this world, but that you would strengthen them, that you would give them victory, that you would give them defenses to stand against the evil one. But he tasked you with a mission to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse world. So how could you not be affected by it or come into contact with it and at the same time fulfill the mission that God has for you, which is to be his reflection and his light into the darkness? You couldn't. So that's not the point. The point isn't that you would be completely separated from all evil. The point is that you wouldn't associate with it, that you wouldn't celebrate it, that you wouldn't become a part of it. And how does, as you think about, it excludes this intimacy with people and things that are opposed to God. That's the idea. Being intimate with the things that are opposed to God. That's what God doesn't want. And so how does David, he's, he's first going to describe what a life of in, integrity excludes, and it excludes becoming in, intimate with these things that are ungodly and are unrighteous. And how does he describe it? Well, look at verses four and five. He says, I have not sat with adulterous mortals. Are you becoming intimate with idolatry? Are you promoting this idea that there are things more important than God? You say, I'm not an idolater. I don't have a golden calf on my shelf at home. I'm not worshiping a false god. Are you? You are when you're elevating things to a place of importance above God. You're participating intimately in this ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now David's saying, I'm not sitting with those people. I'm not going in, meaning I'm not visiting hypocrites. People who are saying one thing and doing another thing. Now, people that's people whose lives are characterized by ungodliness and unrighteousness, not people that are have a tendency to not follow through you know, at times with the things that they wish were true or want to be true, you wouldn't be able to associate with anyone. He says, I have hated the assembly of evildoers and I don't sit with the wicked, meaning I don't, I don't take up a place of familiarity or intimacy with them. You see, the company you keep matters. The company you keep is important. 
What happened in Lot's life? Who remembers that story? Did Lot go from being a man of faith to being a man of the world overnight? And the Bible describes that progression in Lot's life in, with three phrases. First, what did Lot do? It says that he looked, he looked toward Sodom. He noticed it. It caught his eye. Was noticing or having your eye caught or your gaze kind of captivated by something that was bright and shiny and flashing, was that the problem? Mm-hmm. Not in and of itself, but the second step moved further in that direction because it then says he pitched his tent toward Sodom. So he looked toward Sodom, then he pitched his tent toward Sodom, then what did he do? He moved into Sodom. And that had permanent consequences detrimental consequences to his spiritual life and his family's spiritual life because of those decisions. Another psalm that we've already looked at that touches on this is Psalm 1. So this is likely what David has in mind here when he's talking about this life of integrity and how it doesn't include these things. But how does Psalm 1-1 go? It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. That man is blessed because he's not being intimate with. He's not fellowshipping with. He's not, he's not assimilating with. He's not approving of. He's not affirming. He's not participating in. He's not associating with the things that are ungodly and are unrighteous. Now, that can be true even as it relates to believers. We don't have time for it tonight, but even in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about that. He says, I had previously written to you to not keep company with people who were sexually immoral. And those were people that were in, in the world, for starters, that's what he had written about. But now he says, how could you fulfill your mission, this is me summarizing, if you never came into contact with those things. But he's saying you should be careful about who you spend time with in terms of Intimacy again. The word is intimacy. It's not to never be around somebody or to completely distance yourself from somebody, but it's how intimate are you going to be in approving of, affirming, or participating or associating with even believers who are out in left field? Are you going to affirm their thinking? Are you going to participate in their conversations and discussions? Are you going to associate with the ungodliness that's present in their life and the unrighteousness? The idea of is. A life that is one of integrity doesn't have a life that is blending right in to the ungodliness and the unrighteousness that's going on around you. Not with believers and not with unbelievers. But God forbid that believers would come together and actually have a detrimental effect on one another because the thinking, the mindset is so out of whack. And then if the thinking is far enough out of whack, it justifies all kinds of speak, speech and ways of, of talking, of conversations, of then behavior that comes the next step after that. And pretty soon, believers are not benefited from being together. They're actually, they're actually hurt. They're harmed by being together. That's what Paul talks about. So could this involve having some judgment and some discernment as it relates to both the company you keep, as it relates to the ungodly and the godly? Yes. The idea is don't intimately associate yourself or participate with the darkness. You're called to be a light in the darkness without being intimately connected to the darkness. You're not supposed to be intimately connected to the darkness. You're supposed to come into the darkness as a reflection and to shine 
God's light. The mission calls for separation. God wants to set you apart. He wants to transform you into something different than what you are. He doesn't, the mission doesn't call for integration into the darkness. It, it calls for you to be a light that stands out in stark contrast to the darkness, not that you become a part of the darkness. See, being a part of the op- opposition isn't being set apart. It's the exact opposite of what God wants. Being conformed to the world is the exact opposite of being transformed so that your thinking would be completely different than what the world says is true. Then in verses 6 through 8 here, as we move on, we see that verses 4 and 5 talk about what a life of integrity excludes, but then 6 through 8 talk about what a life of integrity includes. And so we see this as a contrast. David describes remaining innocent blameless or set apart. He describes seeking to worship the Lord with a heart of gratitude and loudly proclaiming God's goodness and provision. He describes loving intimate fellowship with the Lord, prioritizing time spent with him and seeking the Lord's presence. That's all found in these verses for the sake of time. We're not going to read them again, but ask yourself, look at these things he's describing, being set apart and blameless, seeking the worship of the Lord with a heart of gratitude. You see that where he says in verse, I have loved the habitation of your house. I will go about your altar, O Lord. I will proclaim with a voice of thanksgiving. There's this heart of gratitude here. I love, though, being where you are, God, is the idea. I love being where your glory dwells. I like staying close to you. There's a picture there of loving to have intimate fellowship with the Lord. He talks about how he's going to prioritize spending time with him. That's what he wants to do. That's where he wants to dwell. That's where he wants to stay and seeking out the Lord's presence. And the question is, are you doing that? You see, instead of associating with ungodliness, associate with God. Be occupied with Him. Fellowship with Him. Promote and worship Him. Prioritize spending time with the Lord the way you prioritize other things. Do we prioritize other things? And the answer is yes. We prioritize many of the wrong things. And God says, the the life that is described as walking in integrity prioritizes these things. Intimacy with me, fellowship with me, worship of me, a heart of gratitude toward me for what I've done in your life. That's what will replace this instead of seeking out this intimacy with ungodliness and unrighteousness and participating in and joining in and associating with those things. It has all these other things instead. Now, he ends by talking about disassociation from those who reject God, disassociating himself from those who reject God. Now, remember, that doesn't mean that you stop proclaiming Jesus into the darkness. That doesn't mean that you quit speaking God's truth or being, seeking to be a testimony to the lost. It means that you want to be disassociated from them, though. You don't want to be identified with the lost. You want to be identified as a child of God, as one who is set apart. So we end with verses 9 through 12 here, and it says, in verse 9, Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men. Now he describes those men. They're people who, in whose hands is a sinister scheme, in whose right hand is full of bribes. He says instead, but as for me, I will walk in my integrity. There we have it that second time. And he says, redeem me, God. Be merciful to me. Cause me to be disassociated from those people, God. And give my foot an even place to stand. 
And then what's his final conclusion? The congregation, I will bless the Lord. So as we unpack these last three verses really quickly, as we're looking at it, God, David just continues to contrast and distinguish between those who trust God and those who reject God. See, those who reject God face his judgment and condemnation. When he says, do not gather my soul with sinners, he's saying, do not deal with me as you will deal with them. See, the one who rejects God is described by their sin instead of by the redemption that has been made available through the work that God's work on their behalf. Does that mean David wasn't a sinner anymore? No, he still was. But he wasn't identified anymore with his sin. He was identified with the redemption that God had provided him in rescuing him from the consequence and the identification with his sin that he had previously been identified before he put his trust in God's provision to deal with his sinfulness. And so that's what he says, don't deal with me as you deal with them. The one who's still under God's wrath is the one who doesn't have the Son. See, he who has the Son has what? Has life. He who does not have the Son of God shall not see life, but what? The wrath of God abides on him. Why? Because he's not identified positionally as blameless and set apart in terms of his association with God's provision to deal with his sinfulness. He's still viewed in his sin instead of being viewed and viewed by God as justified in a right standing with God on the basis of his faith, taking God at his word, accepting that what God says is true. And that's the only way any person in the Bible is ever justified is by taking God at his word, trusting that what God said was true, responding to God's solution to deal with his sinfulness apart from works, but through faith in God's provision to meet his need. That's how man was justified. Well, David was, and he says, don't deal with me like you will deal with them. David wants to be viewed in grace as one redeemed instead of as one dead in sin. And you see, God is perfectly justified in judging all men. He, David, was, David deserved God's wrath, but in God's, because of God's grace and God's mercy and God's love, God chose to deal with him in a way that was undeserved and unmerited. And David recognizes that. You see that how he says that. He says in verse 26, verse 11b, he says, redeem me and be merciful to me. He says it's gonna, he knows it's gonna take God's grace and mercy to rescue him from the same consequence that all of these who have rebelled against God and refused to accept God in faith, refused to trust God, everything that they're facing, he realizes the only reason he's escaped that is because of God's mercy and love and grace. This has nothing to do with being perfect or sinless. The focus is one of identity. You are either associated with faith and trusting God or rebellion and rejecting God. The response of rejection is described in terms of ungodliness and unrighteousness, but the focus isn't specifically ungodliness and unrighteousness. It's being without God. The problem is being without God. And so their rejection of God is described by their actions But that isn't even really the focus. They're described as bloodthirsty men. They have sinister schemes. They're full of bribes. But the issue is they haven't responded to God in faith. You see, a a response of faith continues to be described in terms of internal and external response. David's response of faith is described as, I will walk in my integrity. And that, again, is always true positionally that God will see him. I will have a way of life that is blameless. I will have that positionally. I continue to be blameless positionally. David can say that with confidence, but it also is David expressing this desire to practically continue living in a way that is upright. 
He says, I, this, I want this to be true of me. God is going to be the judge, but I want God as a result of my faith and as a result of trusting God, I want him to produce this in my life. And so, again, David, he, he wants that to be characteristic of him. And he also understands that redemption is undeserved. We touched on that. Redeem me and be merciful to, him, to me. Then he says, he poetically describes the result of God's deliverance. What is the result of God's deliverance? My foot stands in an even place. My foot stands in an even place in verse 12. Now that just refers to a place of safety or a place of sure footing. And then he ends with the only reasonable response a man should have to seeing God's goodness and God's provision and God's grace and God's mercy and God's love for them. What's the only reasonable response, he says, to end verse 12? In the congregations, in front of many people, what will I do? I will bless the Lord. I will praise the Lord. So, walking in integrity. I have walked in my integrity is how we got our title blamelessness, I have walked in blamelessness, I have walked in innocence, I have walked in uprightness. Now, the question is, is that your desire? If it is your desire, do you want to be set apart from the things that are opposed to God? Is that your desire? Now, if it is your desire, how is that going to be accomplished? Remember our phrases. This is what I want to leave you with. I have unwaveringly trusted in the Lord. I have unwavering trust in the Lord. That was part one. Then, I never lose sight of your faithfulness and unfailing love. I have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. That's how God's going to set you apart. Unwavering trust, never losing sight of his faithfulness and unfailing love, and living in reliance on that very faithfulness. Now, what is the result of all that? The result of all of that is how David ends this psalm. I stand in a place of safety and I bless the Lord. I stand in a place of safety and I bless the Lord. That's what it means to walk in integrity. It's something that God produces in our lives. It's something that leads to having safety and security. It's also something that causes us to bless God for what he's done. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we can spend in this psalm. Thank you for this really encouraging look into what it means to live a life that would bring you honor and glory, to be reminded of the means, the power behind that, how that would be true. Pray that we would keep our eyes on you. Pray that we would never lose sight of your faithfulness and your love for us, that we would live in